Yeah, I hope you can hear me clearly. I have a head cold and I do apologize. Hopefully the uh, deficiency of my voice will not detract from the beauty of the history of the church, which we are here now to discuss. The last time we were together, we spoke from the book of Acts, and then we covered the life and some of the writings of Clement, a disciple of Paul. Now tonight we are going to continue our survey through the early church. Tonight we're going to look at an overview of the period again to place our context. And then we will look at Polycarp, his epistle to the Philippians, and the account of his martyrdom. So before we begin, let's pray. We'll read a passage of Scripture and then to the material. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for this good evening. We thank You for Your many mercies to us. Uh, We thank You that You have given us Your church, that You have included us in it. We thank You for the, uh, the, the things that You are doing to beautify and glorify Your church in history, to present to Yourself a pure and lovely bride. And so we ask tonight that you would help me to speak clearly, uh, to engage our attention so that we can know the works that you have done in the past, so that we can praise you now, and so that we can learn some things. And we praise you for your many kindnesses in Jesus' name. Amen. Please turn your attention to Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation." Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. This is the word of the Lord. That was was a much better effort than last time. (laughs) Now, we are in the period immediately following the time of the Apostles. So the men that we are looking at in this portion of our series lived during the end of the Julio-Claudian dynasty of the Roman Empire. The upheavals around and included in the year of the four emperors and then the establishment of the Flavian dynasty and then shortly thereafter the Nervan Antonine dynasty. Okay, now that was all very big. Lots of big words. Julio-Claudian dynasty begins with Augustus, ends with Nero. Okay, Nero, bad guy. Nero, bad guy. Okay. If, if you can leave anything with anything tonight, Nero, bad guy is a thing. <laughs> now, the year of the four emperors, you had four of these guys scrapping for power in Rome. The Flavian dynasty. Can anyone name the first emperor of the Flavian dynasty? Flavia. <laughs> Vespasian. <laughs> His family name was... Flavius. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> so, yes, the second was Titus, his son, and the third was Domitian, his other son. Okay, so this dynasty only lasted for two generations. 
Now, persecution of the church starts really under Nero, and it happens under Vespasian and Titus, though sporadically. Domitian really doesn't like the church. So he is one of the early systematic persecutors of the church, at least compared to what went before. Now, under the succeeding dynasty, the Nervan Antonine dynasty, we have a more relaxed imperial policy regarding persecution, but we have more local persecutions. So Domitian was assassinated, and then he was succeeded by a man named Nerva. Now, typically, we consider him to be the first of the five good emperors, right? So you have Nerva, you have Trajan, Hadrian. Oh, wait, I missed one. Ah, Nerva Antonius Pius comes after Trajan, but before Hadrian. There we go. And then the fifth being Marcus Aurelius. So under their administration, it's a more relaxed imperial policy regarding Christians, but there's more intense local persecutions. Their basic policy, as outlined by Trajan, was that they would not hunt out Christians, but if any were turned in, these would be forced to recant Christ. They would be forced to offer sacrifice to the genius or the genius of the emperor, forced to um, claim that they're not a Christian, and forced to blaspheme Christ, and then they would be let go. Any stubborn soul unwilling to do any of this will be tortured and executed. Now, we have an interesting uh, series of correspondences between Trajan and one of his governors named Pliny the Younger, who's a governor of Bithynia during that period. And Pliny is asking, what should I do with these Christians? I've got a lot of these people floating around. Uh, They're very obnoxious because they don't break any laws, uh, and they don't murder anyone. They don't steal from anyone, and they pay their taxes. What do I do with these people? And so the policy, as enumerated by Trajan, was basically what I just said. So if you catch a Christian, torture and kill, unless he recants, uh, but don't go looking. Don't hunt for these people. Now, this is in the context of a series of commotions and civil strifes. Okay, recall 70 AD has already happened. Vespasian and his son Titus have already sacked Jerusalem and burned the temple to the ground. So, in this period, following the destruction of the temple, there are a series of disturbances where Jews and Greeks are going at it in street battles in various parts of the empire. We have record of this in Asia, so modern-day Turkey. We have record of this in Egypt, modern-day Alexandria. Now, Christians, to the Roman perspective, are very often indistinguishable from Jews. Uh, They really are having a hard time figuring out what makes a Christian different from a Jew. Now, we know what the differences are, particularly uh, regarding things like circumcision, things like baptism, whether or not Jesus Christ is the Messiah or not. But to the Roman world, to the Roman administration, there was some confusion. And so a great many of our brothers got caught up in these persecutions. There is also the fact that the early church was persecuted by Jewish communities in many areas that we have to consider as well. Now, during the reign of Trajan, a serious persecution erupted against the church in the the provinces of the Eastern Empire. 
Now, this persecution seems to coincide with another minor revolt. So we've got 8070 and 130, which is the Bar Kokhba revolt, the big one that Hadrian finally demolishes Jerusalem. And he actually kicks the Jews out of Jerusalem, renames the city, builds a Roman temple on the Temple Mount, and it's illegal for a Jew to go back into Jerusalem. Between those two events, there are a series of disturbances, civil uh, unrest, rioting, and many Christians are caught up in this. And it's during these intermediate persecutions that we see men like Ignatius and Simeon, bishops of Antioch and Jerusalem respectively, suffering martyrdom. Now, Ignatius will cover in our next lecture, uh, he's a very interesting cat. I, I really love this guy, and I hope by the end of that lecture you will too, but returning to this. Simeon, he's the bishop of Jerusalem. He's the second bishop of Jerusalem, and he's the son of Clopas and Mary. And this is the Mary that was mentioned in John 19 as having been at the crucifixion of our Lord. According to a very old tradition, Simeon is a cousin of Jesus, his father being brothers with Joseph. So according to tradition, Clopas and Joseph are brothers. So Simeon, the second bishop of Jerusalem, is a cousin to our Lord. Now, Simeon, his martyrdom is of note because of something that Vespasian started to do. He, remember, was the guy that finally sacked Jerusalem, right? He and his son Titus. So Vespasian begins a policy of hunting down any descendants, any living descendants of the line of King David. And this is very interesting on two fronts. One, it was shortly after this Jewish war that Josephus went to Rome and wrote his great history of the Jewish war and his history of the Jewish people. And these were bestsellers in Rome. One of the things that Josephus points out is that the Messiah will come through the line of David. Right? He's very clear about that. That is what the Scriptures say. <laughs> so Vespasian sees revolts in Judea, and he's thinking to himself, well, I've read Josephus. I've fought over there. Those guys really do like a dogfight. I've got to watch out for this David guy. So Vespasian is sort of acting like Herod in the Gospels, trying to take out the king. Now, Vespasian of course, is ruling after Christ's ascension. He can't get his hands on Christ. <laughs> but he can get his hands on some other people related to him. And so, the Simeon, his martyrdom is suffered in this context. He was turned over to the Roman authorities because he was a descendant of David and a relative also of Christ. Now, in Domitian's persecution, we get an interesting story. Uh, two of... Jude's grandsons get wound up in this same persecution. I'm just going to... Uh, is this Eusebius? Yes, this is Eusebius. I'm just going to look at this really quickly with you. So, Jude is the, a brother of Christ. Now, Eusebius is going through some of the, um, some of the persecutions, and he writes, but when this same Domitian... Okay, so this is Vespasian's son... But when the same Domitian commanded that the descendants of David should be slain, an ancient tradition says that some of the heretics brought accusation against the descendants of Jude, said to have been a brother of the Savior according to the flesh, on the ground that they were of the lineage of David and related to Christ himself. 
Hegesippus, an early church historian uh, that Eusebius quotes, relates these facts in the following words. And this is a funny story, so this, this, enjoy this. Of the family of the Lord there were still living grandchildren of Jude, who is said to have been the Lord's brother according to the flesh. Information was given that they belonged to the family of David, and they were brought to the emperor Domitian by the Evocatus. Now, the Evocatus is a Roman soldier who's in the Roman, lower Roman bureaucracy. So these, these grandsons of Jude get turned over. For Domitian feared the coming of Christ as, as Herod had feared it. And he asked them if they were descendants of David, and they confessed that they were. Good men. Then he asked them how much property they had or how much money they owned. And this is where this gets really funny to me. And both of them answered that they only had 9,000 denarii, half of which belonged to each of them. (laughs) And this property did not consist of silver, but of a piece of land which contained only 39 acres and from which they raised their taxes and supported themselves by their own labor. (laughs) So they own a small farm. (laughs) The most powerful man in the world... And these two fellows who own 39 acres are standing in front of him. Then they showed their hands, exhibiting the hardiness of their bodies and the callousness produced upon their hands by continual toil as evidence of their own labor. (laughs) And when they were asked concerning Christ and his kingdom, of what sort it was and where it was to appear, they answered that it was not a temporal nor an earthly kingdom, but a heavenly and angelic one which would appear at the end of the world when he should come in glory to judge the quick and the dead and to give unto everyone according to his works. So these men, these two farmers who own 39 acres of land get to tell Domitian about Jesus. (laughs) Marvelous. Upon hearing this, Domitian did not pass judgment against them, but despising them as of no account, he let them go. <laughs> yeah, you brought me two farmers who own 39 acres. Uh, what a bunch of meat sticks. But when they were released, they ruled the churches because they were witnesses and were also relatives of the Lord. And peace being established, they lived until the time of Trajan. So these two fellows go home from their interview with the emperor and uh, rule in the church faithfully. It's a funny story. This is the kind of thing that's going on. Domitian's in a panic because of this Messiah. <laughs> but the Messiah's already come. Now, we're going to get to the man with whom we are going to spend the most of our lecture tonight. Polycarp. Polycarp was a disciple of the Apostle John. In later life, he was made the bishop of the church in Smyrna. It is almost certain that he is the angel referred to in Revelation 2, the passage I just read. He is the angel of the church of Smyrna. And John writes to him about suffering persecution. And he writes about steadfastness unto death. Now, much of our biographical data of him comes from his disciple Irenaeus. We also have an account here of his martyrdom, which we'll cover. And he wrote an epistle to the Philippian church, which we will cover. So there's an interesting uh, anecdote about the Apostle John that may relate to Polycarp as well. Uh, This is also found in Eusebius. Now, Polycarp in this anecdote is not named, but it's probable that it's him. 
Okay. So, Polycarp spent a good amount of time with John. And remember, John is, is the apostle that lived the longest. He died last of the apostles. And uh, it says here, Eusebius claims that John lived into the reign of Trajan, early into the reign of Trajan. So, quite a while. Now, it says here... This is a narrative concerning John the Apostle, which has been handed down and treasured up in memory. For when after the tyrant's death, uh, we're not sure which emperor that is, that could be Domitian, it could be Nero, it's more likely Domitian, he returned from the Isle of Patmos to Ephesus. He went away upon their invitation to the neighboring territories of the Gentiles to appoint bishops in some places, in other places to set in order whole churches, and elsewhere to choose to the ministry some one of those that were, appoint, that were pointed out by the Spirit. So John's traveling through the area, establishing churches, appointing bishops, uh, settling issues, settling churches, and preaching. When he had come to one of the cities not far away the name of which is given by some. It's very interesting that Eusebius doesn't give the name of the town. Uh, it's almost like he was trying to have a little bit of respect for Polycarp and his, um, his reputation because he doesn't shine so brightly in this story. And having consoled the brethren in other matters, he finally turned to the bishop that had been appointed, Polycarp, and seeing a youth of powerful physique, of pleasing appearance, and of ardent temperament, he said, This one I commit to thee in all earnestness in the presence of the church and with Christ as witness. And when the bishop had accepted the charge and had promised all, he repeated the same injunction with an appeal to the same witnesses and then departed for Ephesus. So there's a young man, the apostle John hands him over to Polycarp and says, Train this man in the faith. And Polycarp says, Yes, I shall adopts him almost as a son. Uh, but the, pr the presbyter, taking home the youth committed to him, reared, kept, cherished, and finally baptized him. So he did his Christian duty towards this young man. After this, he relaxed his stricter care and watchfulness with the idea that in putting upon him the seal of the Lord, that is, baptism, he had given him a perfect protection. But some youths of his own age, idle and dissolute, accustomed to evil practices, corrupted him when he was thus prematurely freed from restraint. So this young man got into some things. He got into uh, you know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Uh, they didn't have rock and roll back then. Uh, but he got into violence and robbery. And finally, despairing of salvation in God, he no longer meditated on what was, uh, what was insignificant, but having committed some great crime... Since he was now lost once for all, he expected to suffer eternal damnation. And taking up with a band of robbers, he became a bold bandit chief, the most violent, most bloody, most cruel of them all. All right, so this young man apostatizes. Time passed. <laughs> Time passed. And some necessity having arisen, they sent for John. So now John's coming back. Yeah, now you can imagine the poor bishop. But he, when he had set in order the other matters on account which he had come, said, Come, O bishop, restore us the, the deposit which both I and Christ committed to thee, the church over that which thou presidest, being witness. So he calls the bishop out on the state of this young man. But the bishop was at first confounded, so he's confused, thinking that he, had falsely, he was falsely charged in regard to money, which he had not received. And he could neither believe the accusation respecting what he had not, nor could he disbelieve John. 
But when he said, I demand the young man and the soul of the brother, the old man groaning deeply, and at the same time bursting into tears, said he is dead. How and what kind of death? He is dead to God, he said, for he turned wicked and abandoned, and at last a robber. And now instead of the church, he haunts the mountain with a band like himself. But the apostle rent his clothes, and beating his head with great lamentation, he said, A fine guard I left for a brother's soul. But le- a fine guard I left for a brother's soul. But let a horse be brought me, and let someone show me the way. John's old, and he's calling for a horse. He rode away from the church just as he was, and coming to the place, he was taken prisoner by the robber's outpost. He, however, neither fled nor made an entreaty, but cried out, For this did I come, lead me to your captain. The latter, meanwhile, was waiting, armed as he was. But when he recognized John approaching, he turned in shame to flee. But John, forgetting his age, pursued him with all his might, crying out, Why, my son, dost thou flee from me, thine own father, unarmed, aged? Pity me, my son. Fear not. Thou hast still hope of life. I will give account to Christ for thee. If need be, I will willingly endure thy death as the Lord suffered death for us. For thee I will give up my life. Stand, believe. Christ hath sent me. And he, when he heard, first stopped and looked down. And when he threw away his arms, and then he trembled and wept bitterly. And when the old man approached, he embraced him, making confession with lamentations as he was able, baptizing himself a second time, as it were, with tears, and concealing only his right hand. But John pledging himself and assuring him on oath that he would find forgiveness with the Savior, besought him, fell upon his knees, kissed his right hand itself, as if now purified by repentance, and led him back to the church. And making intercession for him with copious prayers, and struggling together with him in continual fastings, and subduing his mind by various utterances, he did not depart, as they say, until he had restored him to the church, furnishing a great example of true repentance, and a great proof of regeneration, a trophy of a visible resurrection. Yeah. I love the fathers. You find that there. And if hope for a robber, how much more so for me? So, the bishop involved with John in this story, according to tradition, was Polycarp. Now, the record of his death was written for us by a man named Everestus. He was one of the men of the church of Smyrna, a deacon or one of the elders. The story was copied by a man named Caius, who found it in the possession, the original, in the possession of his own teacher, Irenaeus. It's interesting, at the end of this epistle, we have the names of all the copyists. So we know who read the book and who copied it for further reading. It's a very interesting little historical note at the end of that book. And Irenaeus, who we will talk about next time, was a disciple of Polycarp. Now, he died in Smyrna either on March 25th or April 25th. There's some dispute. But first, we'll get to his epistle, and then we'll come to his martyrdom, because he wrote a book. We should read books 
that have been written by godly men. So, he wrote an epistle to the Philippians. And you know that the Apostle Paul wrote an epistle to the Philippians. So this is kind of interesting. This is just like Clement having written to the Corinthians after Paul had. Now, there are some things that are very notable in this epistle, and it's a short one. I'm not going to read the whole thing to you, though it would profit you greatly if I did. Uh, You can find it online or in hard copy. It's well worth reading. Something that is notable about Polycarp is how freely and extensively he quotes from Scripture. This is, this is a thing you will find in the patristic writers. These men know their Bibles, and they expect that you know your Bibles. And if you don't know your Bible, by the time you're done reading him, you will know your Bible. This also is interesting because Polycarp is in the first generation after the apostles, and yet he's quoting the New Testament extensively. The New Testament is widely available in the early church. This is something that modern, critical, liberal scholars like to say isn't so, and they're wrong. Okay? (laughs) I might even start dancing, but don't ask me to sing. So the... (laughs) When in doubt, when in doubt, go with the Scriptures and the traditions. Modern, modern scholarship is not that good. Now, Polycarp quotes the New Testament a lot. He knows this stuff. In the first part of the epistle, in, in about the first 500 words or so, he quotes or alludes to Philippians 1, Acts 2, 1 Peter 1, Ephesians 2, 1 Peter 1 again, Ephesians 6, Psalm 2, 1 Peter 1 for the third time, 1 Peter 3, uh, Philippians, Acts 27, 1 Corinthians 6, 2 Corinthians 4, Romans 8, 1 Peter 3, Matthew 7, Matthew 6, in that order, Matthew, uh, Luke 6, Matthew 7 again, Luke 6 again, Matthew 5, Luke 6 for the third time. That's all in the first 500 words. (laughs) Now, I I challenge any of you to write a letter or an email like that. Now, he opens his epistle writing, Polycarp and the presbyters with him to the church of God sojourning at Philippi, mercy to you and peace from God Almighty and from the Lord Jesus Christ our Savior be multiplied. I have greatly rejoiced with you in our Lord Jesus Christ because you have followed the example of true love as displayed by God and have accompanied as became you those who were bound in chains the fitting ornaments of saints and which are indeed the diadems of the true elect of God and our Lord. So he praises them for suffering with the suffering, for visiting the prisoners, those bound in chains. And those chains, they're the fitting ornaments of saints. Notice how he speaks of imprisonment. Chains are the proper jewelry of those who love the Lord. And because the strong root of your faith spoken of in days long gone by endureth even until now. So these are men and women in this church that have been faithful from the time of the apostles until his day. 
and bringeth forth fruit to our Lord Jesus Christ, who for our sins suffered even unto death, but whom God raised from the dead, having loosed the bands of the grave, in whom, though ye see him not, ye believe, and believing, rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. And already he's quoting thick and fast the Scriptures into which joy many desire to enter, knowing that by grace you are saved not of works, but by the will of God through Jesus Christ. Wherefore, gird up your loins, serve the Lord in fear and truth, as those who have forsaken the vain empty talk and error of the multitude, and believed in Him who raised up our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead, and gave Him glory and a throne at His right hand. To Him all things in heaven and on earth are subject." Right? He just keeps rolling. It's great. Him every spirit serves. He comes as the judge of the living and the dead. And he carries on. Polycarp is readable. And he's great. I recommend reading him. In his little epistle... He, he does several things. One, he has various exhortations to holy living. Uh, he talks about praying continually. He says to his presbyter, teach the widows to be discreet as respects the faith of the Lord, praying continually for all. So teach this group of people in your church to pray continually. He says, let us arm ourselves with the armor of righteousness. And let us teach, first of all, ourselves to walk in the commandments of our Lord. He talks about the duties of deacons. He says, Knowing then that God is not mocked, we ought to walk worthy of His commandments and glory. In like manner, should the deacons be blameless before the face of His righteousness, as being the servants of God in Christ and not of men. And this this is a fitting admonition for us as we are engaged in building a diaconate. He says also here that if we please Him in the present world, we shall receive also the future world as He has promised to us that He will raise us up from the dead. Now, this is another thing. In the early fathers, they hammer on the resurrection. This is primary central doctrine that Christ is raised from the dead and those who are in Him will also be raised with Him. In, uh, in chapter 10, he, he writes, and this is, this is really good, Stand fast, therefore, in these things and follow the example of the Lord being firm and unchangeable in the faith, loving the brotherhood and being attached to one another, joined together in the truth, exhibiting the meekness of the Lord in your intercourse with one another, despising no one. When you can do good, defer it not, because alms deliver from death. Teach, therefore, sobriety to all and manifest it also in your own conduct. Another thing that you will find in many of the early fathers is they exhort the church to love each other, love the brotherhood, be attached to one another, be joined together in truth. 
Be meek with one another. Do not despise each other. This is good. This is good for us as it was for them. Now, he also spends a lot of his eloquence on um, encouraging perseverance because he's living in suffering. He's going to die a martyr. And he's not confused about whether or not a man should persevere. Now, in this, he also uh, mentions a certain Valens, who was a presbyter. He says, I am greatly grieved for Valens, who was once a presbyter among you, because he so little understands the place that was given to him in the church. I exhort you, therefore, that ye abstain from covetousness, and that you be chaste and truthful. It appears that this Valens had been ordained to an office in the church, but could not control his own immoderate lust for wealth. He was covetous. He loved other men's stuff. He did not love the gifts God had given him. And so he was led astray by his lusts into sin and abandoned his office. And he says, I am deeply grieved, therefore, for him and his wife, to whom may the Lord grant true repentance. And he says to the church, And be then moderate in regard to this matter, and do not count such as enemies, but call them back as suffering and straying members, that ye may save your whole body, for by so acting ye shall edify yourselves. It is good to call the wayward sinner back to fidelity to Christ. It is good for the sinner and it is good for the church. Now we don't know whether or not Valens repented of his covetousness and came back to the church. Nothing is said of that. And at the end of the epistle, he asks uh, for information, right, from his friends about Ignatius. He knew that his friend Ignatius had suffered martyrdom, but he didn't know the details, so he asks, please send news. Now, Let's come to the martyrdom of Polycarp. This is one of those wildly fantastic stories. It's great. Now, speaking about someone being murdered is not usually prefaced with a statement like it's great. But this, this for the glory of God and, and, and the benefit and growth of His church cannot be, un, yeah, it cannot be understated. Now, this account was sent uh, to a local church down the road at a place called Philumelium. That's a big word. Some of these uh, Roman cities have pretty great names. Now, outside of the martyrdoms recorded in the book of Acts, this is of the earliest, okay? So this is maybe not the first person who was martyred, but this is the first martyrdom we have a record of. Uh, you can also read uh, the account in Eusebius. He, he copies most of this letter down for us. I, I have the... Um, a copy of both, actually. Now, it begins, as all good stories do, with a man in an arena with a screaming mob. Right? So, so imagine in your mind, you've got a, uh, like a small-town hockey arena, and uh, the sport is not uh, hockey, it's blood. Okay, you've got the screaming mob, and there's a man. Germanicus is his name. He has confessed Christ. All right, he has made good confession. I am a Christian. 
He refused to sacrifice to Caesar. Now the wild beasts are set on him, okay? Now Germanicus, he's a bit older. We're not sure exactly how old, but it's said that he was uh, spry, (laughs) spry for a man his age. And he fought heroically with the beasts. So you can imagine wild, hungry wolves and tigers and such, and this old dude just knocked one out. Now, the proconsul, who's uh, sort of like a mix between a mayor and a governor, he's present, and he entreats him, on account of his great age, to swear an oath to the emperor and to offer sacrifice, right? So he's like, you're old, why should you suffer this kind of humiliation in public? This is wrong. Right? The Romans, unlike us, have respect for age, which is a commendable thing in them, uh, not so much in us. So he entreats him, on account of your great age, please just swear off Christ, uh, let's stop this. Germanicus is like, nah, no. Turns and throws himself at the animals and they eat him. Right? So thus answers Germanicus to the proconsul. Next up, okay, they got more than one guy in the dock. So next up is a man named Quintus. He is from Phrygia. Okay, so Phrygia is not, uh, he's not a local. He's from a different province. That would be like somebody from Newfoundland coming here and then getting arrested here. So he's from Phrygia. He's a recent immigrant, and he had talked a number of his fellow Christians into surrendering themselves to the authorities. (laughs) This is weird. He seems to have thought that this is what good, pious Christians do, right? They're saying that they're going to arrest us. Let's turn ourselves in because we're good Christians. (laughs) Now, the proconsul had talked him into swearing the oath and offering the sacrifice. So Quintus... He has apostatized. He's there, and he's known to us as Quintus the Apostate. (laughs) I'm not sure what became of him. Now, the comment made by the Smyrnian church at this point in the letter is rather worth quoting. They write, Wherefore, brethren, we do not commend those who give themselves up, seeing that the gospel does not teach us to do so. Okay, so think back to when pastors were getting arrested here in Alberta. Remember Reverend Stevens? He, um, he, he stayed at home. They, they sent him a summons. They said, turn yourself in. He said, no, come to my place and arrest me in front of my children. I dare you. And so they did. And they caught the whole thing on video, and it was marvelous. So Reverend Stevens, I think, may have learned this lesson, at least maybe not from this guy, but the same lesson. You don't turn yourself in. You make them come to you in this case. And the Smyrnian church, they're, they're, they're not happy with Quintus. <laughs> they do not commend him. Now, you can imagine the scene. You've got this old guy who's just been ripped to shreds by the animals. The crowd is going nuts. They're bloodthirsty. They've got this guy, Quintus. They've already made him turn. He's a turncoat. They've got him there. Now, the crowd starts baying And that should give you an image like uh, a pack of dogs. They're baying for the blood of Polycarp, the bishop. Bring out Polycarp. We want that guy. Now, remember, this is not a huge city. Smyrna is not huge. It's going to be probably smaller than Dawson Creek. Everybody in town knows Polycarp. And they want that guy dead. He's done business with them. He's talked and walked with them. He's preached the gospel to them. He's ministered to their sick. They know this guy, and they want him dead. 
Perhaps he'd been at their children's birthday party. He's shown them for years a Christian life and Christian kindness. And their return to him is bang for his blood. It is ever thus. The persecutors of the church are usually our trusted neighbors. So the mob starts chanting, away with the atheists, let Polycarp be sought out. Now this is an interesting thing. The accusation brought against many of the early church fathers who suffered martyrdom was atheism. Which is funny because these men worship Jesus. They clearly aren't atheists. But uh, atheism in this case means you don't worship our gods. You don't worship the Roman gods. So you're an atheist. Um, Modern atheists would probably find this instructive. (laughs) Yes. An atheist is a man who worships something. (laughs) So, the proconsul, he sends out men to get Polycarp. He gets a posse together and sends them out. Okay, so you're in the arena, everyone's screaming for blood, and a posse goes out. This is high excitement. The crowd is at a fever pitch. Now, of course, this is before you, you have a pickup truck. You can't just race there, grab the guy, and come back. You've got to walk over there. Right? So it's going to take some time. These people are, who knows what, who knows what fun they're doing in the meantime. So he sends a posse to get Polycarp. Now, Polycarp was the kind of man who wanted to stand his ground. He's like, I'm going to stay in my post. I've been here for decades. I'm going to stay in my post, and they can have me here. Some of his friends uh, were like, you know what? Well, let's, we can get you out of town. We'll wait until this cools down a little bit. So he goes out of town with his friends to a house that's outside of town and sits down to wait. Now while he's there, he sees a vision announcing to him that he will be burned for Christ. Okay, so he knows he's going to die. The posse shows up. They track him to this house. He jets out the back door. He's like, okay, well, carry on with some friends out the back door. Now, a couple of young men in his household get captured at this location, and one of them is tortured into giving up the bishop's whereabouts, where he's going next. Now, it seems from the account and the way it was written that this fellow may have given out more information than the torture required. Okay, so there's, there's a, little bit of a, a little bit of shade thrown on the young man, like, should have been braver. But, so, <laughs> so the posse... They're like, okay, now we know where the bishop's gone. We need cavalry. <laughs> so they bring in a troop of horse. Okay, so you've got the, uh, the local police called in the SWAT team. They're going to get this guy. They've got a couple of tanks and a helicopter, and they're going after a pastor. Right, just, just like in Calgary. So these guys bust in on our hero, okay, and what do they find? They find an old man taking a nap. He's sleeping. He's on the lamb, and he's sleeping. Now, when you're old, you kind of have to sleep more, perhaps. But I tend to think that this is a man who is firm and secure in Christ and in the knowledge that he is going to suffer martyrdom. So having a nap is good preparation for that. Now, the posse is surprised. They show up, and they're like, ah, we found an old guy taking a nap. We were kind of expecting some resistance, a fight, uh, a younger guy, something. Found an old guy taking a nap. And they say, was so much effort made to capture such a venerable man? 
So Polycarp, he's like, okay, you got me. <laughs> um, before we go, can I please have an, an hour to pray? And the soldiers are like, well, okay, we've got all the time in the world. It's not like he's running off. He's going to pray. Okay. So the text says that he uh, instructed some of his followers who were with him to prepare the soldiers' food. So they have a barbecue. And then Polycarp stands there in the corner of the room and prays. And he prays for everyone he's ever met. Like everyone. He prays for everyone he has ever met, had a conversation with, or knows about for two hours while the soldiers eat. And the soldiers are sitting there like, oh man, this is good food, but kind of embarrassing. He's praying for us now. So now these men are having second thoughts about their business. So after about two hours are up, they figure, you know what? Mm, If we don't do this now, we won't do this. So they grab our saint and they toss him on a donkey. And they go back into town. They get there, and the mayor of the town and the mayor's father are there. Now, I don't know why the mayor's father is there, but he's there. Okay, they're there. They have a chariot, okay? As one does, of course, right? Whenever you meet the mayor and his father, he has a chariot. So they put Polycarp in the chariot. So they're going to ride him in procession through the town back to the arena. So the whole town's watching. Everybody's there. They toss this poor guy into this chariot with the mayor and his dad, and they proceed. On the way, the mayor and his father try to talk the bishop out of Christianity. They try to get him to swear the oaths and perform the sacrifices. Now, these these Roman bureaucrats are very reasonable fellows. Why should an old man suffer? Why suffer for a dead Jew? What's going on here? Come on. This is stupid. Stop. Quintus gave sacrifice, why can't you? So Polycarp refuses. (laughs) They get angry. They toss him out of the chariot and he breaks his ankle. Then they make him walk. So now you've got an old man walking to the arena on a broken leg. Now as he enters the arena, and there were other Christians present, and these are the ones who saw this event happen, heard a loud voice call out, Be strong and show thyself a man, O Polycarp. Now, it seems that only the Christians present heard this. The pagans didn't hear this. But Polycarp believed this to be a divine command. So now the proconsul proceeds to interrogate him in front of the crowd. Now, at first, Polycarp didn't respond. He just, you know, as a lamb is silent before its shearers. He didn't answer. At first, he says nothing, but then the proconsul says something. This is a very funny exchange and rather famous. He says, swear by the fortune of Caesar, repent and say, away with the atheists. So Polycarp turns and he waves at the crowd, away with the atheists. That's not what the proconsul was looking for, but that is what he got. (laughs) Cheeky fellow. The proconsul then says, swear and I will set thee at liberty. Reproach Christ. And Polycarp responds with this. Eighty and six years have I served him, and he never did me any injury. How then can I blaspheme my king and savior? (laughs) The proconsul continues to press. The crowd is going wild. Polycarp says, hey, I have a counteroffer. 
How about I take you aside, you set aside a day in your court, and I will teach you the doctrines of Christianity, and then you can judge me. The proconsul's like, yeah, persuade the people. Polycarp, nah, they're not worthy. They're not worthy. These baying masses aren't worthy. The proconsul then is like, well, if you don't, I've got wild animals set up for you. Polycarp is like, oh, bring it. <laughs> Love it. Call them. The proconsul is like, eh, I've got fire. I can burn you. Polycarp responds with, well, I've got eternal hell fire. Your fire is not as hot as mine. <laughs> this is an old man with a broken leg in front of a bloodthirsty crowd talking down the proconsul. So there's a, um, a fellow in charge of the games. His name is Philip. He's the Asiarch. So he's the man in charge of this whole assembly. Okay? The crowd is like, bring in those animals and let's get this over with. And this guy refuses. And this is another, this is, okay. When you have games in Rome, you open them with sacrifices and you close them with sacrifices. And you can't vary your, um, your ritual. If you vary the ritual, you have to start over at the beginning. You have to redo everything. And that could be really expensive and time-consuming. This guy, Philip, refuses to bring in the animals to attack Polycarp because, you see, we've already done all the ceremonies to put the animals away. We can't do it again. It's illegal. He found a law, a way out of it. This is really funny. I'm not sure what's with these Romans, but when you look at Roman ritual, it's like this. They have a lot of things. Uh, there are some uh, processions that are recorded in history for us through Rome, even where they would uh, they'd go along doing this ritual and then get to the very end of the procession, which took six or seven hours, discover that they did it wrong, they missed something, and then they would take the whole thing, go back to the beginning and start over. So Philip's like, hey, I can't let the animals out because the rituals are all wrong. We can't do that anymore. That was good for this morning, but not this afternoon. <laughs> and me, I'm sitting there like, ah, ah, were they not hungry? I don't get it. Like, bring, anyway. So the crowd demands fire. So they bring this wood and they light the fire and they tie our bishop to the stake in the midst of it. Now, Everestus, the writer of this letter, claims that he and several others witnessed this very thing from within the forum. The flames apparently did not consume Polycarp, but only lightly toasted him. That's what, that's what said. He was only lightly toasted. So the executioner was sent in with a dagger. He stabs Polycarp in the left side, and the blood gushed out, and there was so much of it that it put out the fire. Thus Polycarp, the bishop of Smyrna, died and went to be with our Lord. Now, Another funny thing happens. Again, the ancient world is very different from ours. The whole crowd is still there. And the Christians who are there go to take his body for burial. This is a normal thing. But there were Jews present. Now, this is something that I don't quite understand. What are Jews doing in a Roman theater for one of these kind of celebrations? They shouldn't be there. They know better. But they're there, and they panic. And so they mob the proconsul. Okay, imagine the scene. A bunch of guys, 
who you know shouldn't be here, jump up, run at the proconsul, and they're like, whoa, you can't let them have the body. Why not? You can't let them have the body because if you let them have Polycarp's body, they're going to stop worshiping Jesus, and they're going to start worshiping Polycarp. <laughs> like, the, hmm. Now, the Christians there were like, well, no, we just want to bury the guy. This is reasonable. So then the, uh, the centurion who's there was like, okay, the lot of you stopped this madness, and then he went and relit the fire and, and finished the job. And then the church took his, uh, his bones and buried them later. So what can we learn from this account, this account of Polycarp and his martyrdom? One, there are two things, two main things I wish to highlight tonight. One, we need to recover an attitude that honors the martyr who suffers for Christ's sake. And two, we ought to soberly reflect on suffering and be willing to endure it for Christ's sake. In our speech, in the North American church, we have made the word martyr into a pejorative term. If a pastor or an elder takes a stand, for example, against the interference of the state in the church, as some during, did during COVID, this man is accused of having a martyr complex. <laughs> when other men manfully and publicly stand firm against some evil or other, these are accused of being attention seekers, vain and self-promoting braggarts. And these accusations, more often than not, are leveled by others in the church. This cynical and cowardly slander of our brothers is something that the Canadian church needs to repent of. If Polycarp were in our churches, we would never praise him for dying for Christ. We would condemn him for failing to be reasonable. We would accuse him of being self-seeking. And we would join our accusations to the accusations of his murderers in the vain hope of avoiding that suffering ourselves. And so this is a thing for the Canadian church to repent of. Now, by means of reading these accounts of the martyrs, we may encourage our hearts towards the same firmness that they have shown. Remember what Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 3, all who desire to lead godly lives will suffer. If you love the Lord and you desire to lead a life in obedience to Him, you will suffer. Remember the words of Christ. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. And that's John 17, 14. And also in Luke 6, he said, blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. So Jesus says we are blessed when we suffer on his account. So then, let us be sure to fix our minds soberly on the things of God, on his word and on his promises and on the glory that will be revealed to us who persevere. For the crown of righteousness is given to those who persevere. In James we read, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. 
So then, let us be like the martyr Polycarp, who gave this confession before his death, when he said, Eighty and six years have I served him, and he never did me any injury. How then can I blaspheme my King and Savior? Amen. Amen. Let's uh, close in prayer, and then uh, questions. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Saint Polycarp. We thank you for this father in the faith that we can look to his example as he also imitated you. We praise you for these lessons. We ask that you would help us to live uprightly in our own day. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, any questions? Yes. Yes. Yeah, so the question, now I have to repeat the question in case any of you didn't hear and also for the recording. Noah got after me about this, justly. In the last lecture, I forgot. Uh, so the question is, does Polycarp refer to the book of Philippians? Uh, yes. He tells the Philippians to read it again. <laughs> good advice. Very good advice, yes. <laughs> any other questions? Yes. Can you stand up? Well, please do. All right. Well, thank you very much for coming.